Gabriella Balcom won the right to have a novel published by Clarendon House Publishing when one of her stories was voted best in the anthology in which it appeared. Her book, On the Wings of Ideas, came out following this. What's your favorite genre? Fantasy? Horror? Sci-fi? Romance? Literary fiction? This multi-genre collection of short stories includes all of that and more and has something for everyone. Gabriella's stories will alternately move you and bring you to tears, captivate or horrify you, and have you on the edge of your seat. Don't miss out. Be sure to get a copy today. All her life, Joan placed herself into the hands of men who failed her. Joan does the unthinkable for a woman in 1960, leaving her small town of Gainesfield. As an accomplished musician, Joan served her country in the first ever women's Air Force band, San Antonio, Texas. She unwittingly becomes part of a brainwashing experiment. After her Air Force service, returning to society is particularly hard for Joan, so much so that she has spent a good deal of her life in a mental institution. As a patient in a VA hospital, Joan is found murdered. Small-town secrets, whispers behind closed doors, stolen records, serve to solve the mystery of what the hell happened to Joan. This book is a work of fiction, but very well could have happened. Gabriella Balcom's thrilling sci-fi novella, The Return. The world doesn't know about the compound hidden underground and the wealthy investors funding it want things to stay that way. Although it's the year 2027, most of the facility's research is illegal. If animal rights activists had an inkling of what went on, they'd clamor for justice. Human rights activists would scream from the rooftops. By the time 2030 arrives, Researchers have worked for a while with feline service units and human replicas, HRs, who are virtual prisoners with no rights. More and more of them are dying and they long for freedom. Surprisingly, one of the top scientists isn't happy with the status quo either. Tensions are mounting and things are not as they appear. And now, enjoy this free JZO Modcast show. Hey there, this is Ralph Garman, and you are listening to the World of Myth Bits. You made an excellent choice. Welcome to the World of Myth Bits. I am your host, Jenna Sparks, and this is episode 162. Welcome to the world of Myth Bits. It is I, I am back for a whole new episode, and I think it is a good one. I hope it is. Uh, <laughs> I did some research and got some numbers, and uh, I, I, this is like what, you know, to me would be a very, uh, <laughs> Like, this would be my ideal way to do a podcast. Uh, Unfortunately, it does take time, you know, and 
I'm doing a million things. So hopefully, though, hopefully doing something like this um, will actually prove to be something I can do more frequently. Um, but before we jump into all of that, let us get to the nitty gritty of the housekeeping. So first and foremost, a Miss Peggy's Gerber book, Gerber's book. I'm so sorry, Peggy. Miss Peggy Gerber's book, Stumbling in Crazy Town, will be coming out February 8th, and I'm very excited. Uh, last week, at the board of directors meeting, they unanimously agreed uh, upon a new method for authors to order copies of their books through MythMart. Also, don't forget to order your copy of the World of Myth magazine's 2022 calendars for $9.99 exclusively at MythMart.com. Uh, also, Dave has decided not to renew his incorporation in the state of California and has decided uh, for an LLC in New Mexico to have a better opportunity to deliver better overall service to employees and consumers alike. And also, do not forget, mark it on your calendars. If you ha if you had, by the way, if you had the uh, myth, the world of myth calendar, it actually marks all the new issues. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, uh, don't forget that the new issue is released today, so I'm very excited for that. That also means a review episode coming next week. Uh, so yeah, so it's been kind of a quiet week. Um, I personally have been working on Peggy's book cover, which has been so much fun. I love I love working on the book covers. Um, it's genuinely an enjoyable experience because I got my, like, it's just funny to me how everything kind of circles back. You know what I mean? Like, when I got my start doing, like, digital manipulations, that was kind of my whole thing. I would do silly things or serious. I would just do a whole, like, plethora of, of random things. You know what I mean? Just basic photo manipulation. It wasn't, like, drawing or anything like that. Just photo manipulation through Photoshop. At the time, it was a knockoff version of Photoshop uh, because I was very, very young and didn't know what I was doing. Um, and, you know, the older you get, and I've kind of obviously evolved, um, and I've been doing graphic design for a very long time, <laughs> 15, yeah, probably about, oh my gosh, probably like closer, closer to like... 20 years almost just because it started out like obviously I grew up in the age where we were just kind of coming into the internet and HTML was the whole thing and then we kind of come up to like MySpace and all of that so and I don't want to be like oh I was a graphic designer designing my MySpace page it wasn't like that it was um like I, I was a part of a community where we were just like figuring out how to uh, design websites and all that. It was really wild. Anyway, uh, point is, you know, I never formally went to school or anything to be a graphic designer, but I've been doing it because that's just who I am. It's the, I'm going to figure out how to do this. Um, so that way I don't ever have any excuses. You know, I can just do it. So it's fun to me to kind of 
utilize a skill, like the the skill that I learned that got me interested in art from the get-go. You know what I mean? So it's a lot of fun. Um, so there's that little history lesson on good old Jenna. Uh, no, seriously, it's a lot of fun um, to do the covers and... You know, I, I the the hardest part for me is is always the the titles, um, and making sure like that's just uh, it's probably the most time consuming, you know, just to make sure everything looks and flows good. But I love it anyway. Uh, that was probably the most boring ramble session. Uh, but yeah, otherwise it's been pretty quiet. I've been just doing a couple things like that, um, and. Uh, yeah, actually kind of been kind of taking it slow. I've been working still trying to conceptualize my drawings and stuff. Oh, but other than that, quiet, peaceful, nice, pleasant. Um, so that does nothing whatsoever to segue into what I wanted to talk about this week. Um, so... This is this is a subject that for me it it comes up really often in my life. Um you know and and it's something I I live around, it's something I live with, it's something I see, it's something I see across social media even though I have really tried to limit my time on social media as of late. Uh, but it's kind of unavoidable sometimes if you're just bored and kind of scroll. And you see it. You see weird stuff. You see random things. Um, and so this one, this is something I've talked about before. Joe and I have talked about it many times. Uh, but it's still something that, you know, like progressively – needs to be talked about, I think, and we need to consistently engage in the conversation and not do so out of anger or anything like that, just genuinely productive conversations about how we can produce really great content, you know, because that is for me personally, that's something I'm always, I mean, we're all looking for good entertainment and good content, right? Like, we want to be entertained. Um, and so, but like, it's funny because um, me and my nephew, we've been watching Dexter. Not New Blood, just Dexter, which I had seen many years ago. Up until it uh, ended in 2013. Um, but now I'm, I'm watching it with him. And I'm watching it kind of um, remembering the perspective that we're in 2022. Today, we're in the year 2022. Dexter came out. It started coming out in what, like 2006, 2007. Um, and it's very fascinating to me to see how things have changed. And this is across all forms of film, TV, even music, uh, comedy, com comedy, uh, you know, to see how things have evolved and changed. You know, what was funny or what was edgy in, in 2005, 2006, 2007, 2010 even, it's not like that today. And 
that's kind of what I want to get into. And again, I know I've talked about this before, but this time I come with numbers and actual information and not just opinions. Um, Because I can sit here and go on and on and on all day long about my opinions, but I actually come with facts. Uh, Which again, like I said, is something that I would really like to do more of on this podcast. Uh, So hopefully, hopefully that can kind of be incorporated more. So anyway, going back to like watching Dexter and... It's 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 good. Like I love Dexter. You know, let's not talk about the final season, but I love Dexter. Um, it hasn't aged too poorly. You know, there are things that I've watched and I'm just like, oof, that did not age well. Dexter, for the most part. Um, I think the most rampant thing that I see throughout Dexter is a bit of like transphobia, oddly enough. But unfortunately, that's like one of the most common things. And if you kind of tune yourself into hearing a lot of transphobia, um, it's rampant. Oh, my God. Um, Alarmingly rampant. So, and it really was not uncommon to hear jokes like that, you know, even up till recently, like... Anyway, I'm not going to get into all that because, again, I want to come at you with facts and everything. <laughs> but going into, again, 2022, you know, there's just, there's a lot to talk about, you know, and there's a lot of conversation that I, I hope to kind of get into a little bit more throughout this episode. And again, something I've talked about very regularly is this concept of, of cancel culture, which I hate that term because it's really not a legitimate term. Um, and so we're I'm kind of hoping to delve a little bit into that. But like I said, through an educated, uh, guided approach. So... Let's start off. Let's start off with some numbers of what I want to really get into here. So, in 2019, uh, the think tank for inclusion and equity, the TTIE, surveyed current TV writers to delve deeper behind the scenes into issues of representation, inclusion, and equity in television writing. The top findings. Okay, we're going into numbers here. So the top findings. From 2019, 73.7% of women responded, respondents reported having faced gender or sexual discrimination or harassment. 73.7%. Um, 58.6% of underrepresented writers have experienced discrimination or sexual harassment. Uh, one and a half times the rate of overrepresented writers. Uh, and 11.9% of underrepresented writers who reported incidents of discrimination, bullying, and or harassment were fired. Inclusion seems to be improving for uh, people of color and women uh, writers. Nevertheless, 93% of writers said their most recent writer's room had no disabled or deaf writers. 79.6% had no lower-level writers aged 50 and over, and 25.3% had no LGBTQIA plus writers. 
Representation at the upper levels is still lacking, with 97.4% of writers reporting that their most recent writers' rooms had no upper-level disabled or deaf writers, 56% had no LGBTQIA plus upper levels, and 34.4% had no BIPOC BIPOC, um, upper levels. 35.8% of underrepresented writers had to repeat staff writer level positions, while only 24.2% of overrepresented writers had to do the same. While this remains troubling disparity, <laughs> a troubling disparity, this number has improved since last year's report, so good, which showed 49.2% of underrepresented writers and 34.6% of overrepresented writers repeated staff writer positions. While 25% of writers were praised and or promoted for pushing back on problematic problematic content, Uh, 10.5% were reprimanded and or fired or not asked to return. Furthermore, negative consequences for speaking out against problematic content were not distributed evenly across under- and overrepresented groups. Underrepresented writers were twice as likely to I'm sorry, were twice as likely to be penalized via the aforementioned mechanisms for speaking out against problematic content. Uh, 12.4%, compared to overrepresented writers at 5.1%. So, why are we jumping into this? <laughs> Again, we're this this find these findings were from 2019. So, okay, I'd like to think that think that things have gotten better. I think we are seeing changes and shifts in the media we are consuming. And that's great. That's awesome. That's what we want to see. But it's still a long way (laughs) from uh, not even necessarily quality, but equity, you know, where we really have a chance to have a multitude of viewpoints and views from these people who are putting out this content for us to consume and enjoy and see and witness and learn from ultimately because what we see is what we kind of absorb however we realize it we're still absorbing it right so when we come at it from a factual standpoint with numbers and everything it's really kind of sad and scary you know because (laughs) It's obviously very unbalanced, and I think we can see it time and time again with, I mean, most recently, uh, we've had, uh, oh, I can't think what it's called, sorry, for this part not being factually based, uh, was it Blizzard? A video game company. A couple, actually. It was a couple who kind of had their reckoning uh, with, with major incidents of inequality <laughs> within their halls and again we're st- that's that's present you know that's present tense so obviously we still have a lot of work to do and a lot of efforts to make so i know we're not a television show we're not a, a film company or anything like that but we're all essentially creatives right we are all we still have the same goal in mind which is to 
create content, whether it's a podcast, whether it's a story, whether it's a poem, whether it's a song, whether it's an art piece, whether it's whatever. Whatever we're doing, we're all seeking to create something. So we're all kind of similarly linked with these statistics, you know, unfortunately, because they're not not great statistics. So another factor that is really interesting um, is there's actually this program, uh, and it's called Spellcheck, Spellcheck for Bias, and it's an AI technology that was developed at the University of Southern California, Viterbi, School of Engineering, and it analyzes the script and identifies all forms of representation throughout. It also has the ability to register the number of characters who are people of color, LGBTQIA, have disabilities, or are overall underrepresented in popular media. Uh, Companies that have actually been utilizing the software has actually been Disney and NBC Universal. Uh, All of this information, by the way, the... Uh, think tank for inclusion and equity findings, as well as the information regarding spellcheck for bias, can be found. Uh, you can find more information from cjane.org. So, on that note, so now we have AI. We have AI who's filtering through uh, scripts, in particular, trying to register essentially bad representation. Um, we're, we're talking um, fewer fewer represented roles, stereotypes. We're talking, uh, basically, we're, we're talking about an uh, artificial intelligent technology that is able to identify a lack of inclusion. And I think that's very interesting. But... There's already a job for that done by humans. (laughs) And again, I really hope everybody sticks around and hears all of the information I'm presenting because I'm going to say this and I have a feeling there may be a person or two who who maybe doesn't want to hear it, but just just hear me out, okay? So uh, there is a position called sensitivity readers. And from the University of Alberta... A sensitivity reader is someone who reads for offensive content, misrepresentation, stereotypes, bias, lack of understanding, etc. They create a report for an author and or publisher outlining the problems that they find in a piece of work and offer solutions in how to fix them. By doing this, the literary quality of a work is substantially improved. Right? Okay. So when we talk about that, obviously, the first thought that, well, it wasn't my first thought, but it comes up when you start reading more and more about sensitivity readers, and there are plenty of articles on it, but uh, the whole idea of censorship gets brought up, and I think that's very interesting because uh, the topic of censorship with respect to sensitivity reading uh, can be an attempt to thwart the conversation and divert from real issues at hand. Unconscious bias, lack of diversity, and blockage of in particularly indigenous peoples and those from other communities 
from publishing their own stories. Sensitivity readers must be aware of these larger issues. So, first and foremost, let's define censorship, all right? Uh, So, censorship is the suppression or prohibition of any parts of books, films, news, etc. that are considered obscene, politically unacceptable, or a threat to security. So, first and foremost, I know it's easy to feel hot-headed initially hearing that, you know, the, the whole concept of uh, basically an AI program or a human being who is identifying offensive, uh, potentially racist, phobic of any kind, sexist, you name it. You name the ism, the ist. If there's somebody or an AI uh, uh, that's tracking it, that's looking for it, that brings to mind this idea that, oh, you're trying to censor people's voices. And you have to look at it like this. Is it censorship or is it correction? Right? We wouldn't... (laughs) You wouldn't put out a story with a ton of misspellings, a ton of grammatical errors, a ton of, you know, horrible, horrible issues in terms of the work you're presenting, right? Like just what's what's face value, not the actual content of the story, just face value, what is there, what is slapped either on the book pages or on the web pages, whatever. So is it censorship then to go and correct those? <laughs> if you misspelled the word embarrassed. Obviously, you're going to want to fix that, right? And if there's a proofreader, an editor, somebody to catch that, they're going to catch it, right? And they're going to say, hey, I found a couple misspellings or grammatical errors. Here's an outline on how to fix them. You're going to do it because you want to put the best work out there possible, right? And it happens. Everybody makes mistakes. Nobody is is perfect in this regard. You know, everybody can easily make a mistake. So if you are writing about people, if you are, let's go for the throat here. If you're a white person and you're writing about indigenous people and you get something wrong and somebody calls you out for it, is it then censorship that you shouldn't have written that? Or is it somebody trying to correct you and say, here's how you could have approached that better and written about indigenous people in a way that is not harmful and further stigmatizes this group of people, right? It's less and less about the idea of censorship because that's, of course, like I said, you kind of get this this bullheaded idea immediately where... (laughs) We're thinking, oh no, we we need to be quieted. We don't, we can't, there is no room for us. We're not allowed to speak. We're not allowed to do anything. We're not allowed to create. We're not allowed to put our voices out there. Nobody is saying that. Nobody is saying, oh, you're not allowed to create stories. You're not allowed to produce. (laughs) You're not able to, you're not allowed to create. Like that is not, that is not what's happening. You know what I mean? Um, 
what is happening is this need, this deep, deep need we have where people with, it's not always people with platforms, but people trying to take a voice that's not theirs rather than amplify it. Um, and we see that, we've seen it a lot in Hollywood in particular with the casting of, let's say, Scarlett Johansson in uh, Ghost in the Shell, right? Like, that wasn't the greatest casting choice. <laughs> I think everybody can kind of agree with that. Like, and it doesn't mean that Scarlett Johansson's not a great, you know, actor or anything like that. It just means that there's probably better, somebody who's better suited from Japanese culture, <laughs> from Japan, who could have filled that role that is a Japanese role, you know, and the conversation tends to get really, really malformed and twisted, and it, it again, going back to what uh, came from the University of Alberta, uh, it, it just tends to thwart the conversation, you know, and it really takes away what the actual conversation is, which is representation and inclusion. So when we talk about something like sensitivity readers, again, jumping into this idea of censorship, it's not censorship. It's fixing mistakes. It's adjusting. It's, it's a whole other level of thinking, oh, should I use the phrase in spite of or despite? You know what I mean? Like, it's just kind of working, again, at a deeper level of that kind of concept. So it's really not censorship. If you are blatantly trying to write something that is offensive, if you are, let's say you have a character who... I don't even want to say it. Uh, if you're trying to say, if you're trying to write something that is genuinely offensive, um, to l legitimately harm somebody or a group of people, you know, there's an audience for that, and I don't really want to know them, um, but there is an audience. Uh, and they can have that, I guess, if they want. If that's what they want, then that's what they can have. Um, but on the bigger, on the bigger aspect, I personally don't want to read about stereotypes. I don't want to see that on the films and TV shows and through the music or through the books or whatever that I'm reading. Do you? Like, I don't, I don't, that's not something that interests me. Because first of all, first of all, in a very superficial uh, and superficial level, it's boring. It's boring. You know, stereotypes are ridiculously outdated tropes that genuinely just don't make sense anymore and are really stupid. And 99.9% .9 of them are completely infactual and just do nothing to enhance our lives, right? Because the whole point of stereotypes, the whole 
point of profiling people in such a specific way to where it genuinely harms them, groups of people, it comes down to a power play, right? Because you can dehumanize somebody, you can belittle them, and suddenly they're so small, and it doesn't make you suddenly feel inferior. And we've allowed that for so long, and that's when we look at humor. (laughs) Humor from the turn of the century is it's disgusting. You know, you look at what people were consuming as comedic uh, geniuses, which we're talking about blackface. We're talking about horrible, horrible tropes that just genuinely, like, why? You know, even up to the 80s, that was something that wasn't entirely gone, You know, there are films. There are films. There are several very prominent films that have done that. You know, even recently, you know, we've got the Always Sunny in Philadelphia. You know, it's, but it's not funny anymore. It's just, it's not, you know. Um, And that's good, right? That's good that we've realized, oh, that, yeah, that's actually really, really bad comedy. It's bad and lazy comedy, right? And so it kind of just takes on this life of its own when we start reaching so hard to claim that the people who are offended are the villains because that brings us to this next bit of something I've wanted to talk about for a very long time that always grinds my gears, and that is the idea that it's strictly crybaby millennials who uh, perpetuate quote-unquote cancel cancel culture. Um, (laughs) It's not. I don't know. I don't know why, again, millennials get the brunt of this. Um, But quote-unquote cancel culture has existed in ways that really don't compare to people wanting accountability today because what we're dealing with is accountability culture today which is if somebody if somebody in a prominent role if somebody with a platform does or says something wrong who has major influence you're putting out this information that could be harmful take accountability for that if it's somebody who has actively physically done something that has genuinely physically harmed and not even necessarily harmed, has done something that they shouldn't have done, especially breaching somebody's personal autonomy, um, is that somebody who we, we really want to have a platform? 
because we always forget we we are the audience. We are the ones who make people famous. The people from Jersey Shore didn't get famous just for being born. The Kardashians, you know, it, well, kind of. But, you know, we made these people famous, right? So I'm not going to consume somebody who's done something that genuinely perturbs me. I'm I'm just that's a personal thing. I'm not I don't really care for Lars von Trier's films, so I'm not going to watch them. Okay? <laughs> Easy as that. Um anyway, so going back to the idea of of cancel versus accountability. Cancel culture Honestly, if we want to get into a spar about it, it's existed far longer than millennials. <laughs> um, it's it's not just people in my age group who are crying and whining and, you know, whatever else people think we, we spend all day doing. Uh, I did spend all day kind of doing it, just trying to get research for this. But <laughs> uh, there is a group... <laughs> If you're ever in the headspace, it's genuinely funny. Uh, I kind of don't want to say the name of the group, so I'm just going to rhyme it because I don't want to get in trouble and I don't want to be targeted or doxxed or anything. Uh, called uh, Schmillion Sh- Schmoms. Uh, <laughs> and it's, it's a wild ride. I will get bored occasionally for the past... Pfft, many years since they've really been around and I'll just go on the Facebook and I'll see what they're saying because it's funny it's genuinely funny to me um because it's just ridiculous stuff these are people who really believe in uh I guess we could say traditional values (laughs) um and who think it's their way or the highway right does that sound familiar Does that sound familiar? Because it's, yeah. So let's talk about that group for a moment. Uh, Because while they do tend to kind of spur up a little bit of dust and wind up in the limelight for a minute, they really aren't ever a part of the conversation when it comes to quote-unquote censorship or cancel culture or anything like that. They just, it's, okay. So... (laughs) Take, for instance, in January of 2020, when the group flagged a Burger King commercial for the use of the phrase, damn, that's good, in an ad for an impossible chicken sandwich. Okay. Okay. So, yes. Uh, Or, in March of the same year, they garnered traction in the offense of Actor and icon Billy Porter being featured on an episode of Sesame Street, followed by the use of the flame emoji because it represented that something is cool, awesome, exciting, or quote-unquote on fire. Billy Porter is a very important person, you know, that we get to see. He is just a phenomenal uh, actor and delight. He always brings it in terms of style. He's a style icon, like... Let people relish in who this this awesome man is. Like, okay, whatever. 
Then in July, uh, and I'm sorry, this one is hilarious. <laughs> they not only got upset at Disney Plus's streaming of Hamilton because the musical features some profanity, uh, you know, the real message behind Hamilton is the use of profanity, I guess. Uh, they also, you guys, they also took out, uh, they took a bite out of Cascade the detergent company, uh, for an ad that suggests older people might actually have physical contact with one another. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, in October, they jumped all over Uber Eats for an ad featuring uh, greatest of all time gymnast Simone Biles and Jonathan Van Ness, who you would know from Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, the new, the new take. Uh, actually, it's not Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. It's just Queer Eye. Showing my age, aren't I? Uh, all right. Then they boycotted Hallmark for producing and airing a Christmas film about a gay couple adopting a child. Uh, <laughs> these are clearly things that they do not like, right? Things that they have deemed to be the the absolute destruction of society as we know it, right? So why are they ignored? Why are their values considered the values when people who say, hey, white people using the N-word, not great, don't do it. <laughs> is suddenly deemed as whiny millennial SJW garbage. You know what I mean? Like, it's weird. And there's a very big unbalance there. You know, and we can talk about, I mean, like, on the whole OMM subject, uh, do you guys remember in the 80s uh, with Twisted Sister and Dee Snyder and them having... <laughs> Uh, the, what was it, um, the Parents Music Resource Center, or the Washington Wives, uh, and they scapegoat, sca scapegoated Twisted Sister and Dee Snyder, uh, and that wound up force enforcing, I shouldn't say forcing, but enforcing the whole parental advisory sticker on albums and whatnot. Uh, and what these agencies have in common today, uh, what they have had in common um, is that they, they were, you guys, they were putting out triggering content warnings before most of the folks who are being railed against today were born. Let's be honest. So cancel culture and this idea of being offended by very basic things, you know, uh, rock, rock music, uh, Dee Snyder and his wild hair and his music message. Uh, that's, that's again, that's just the tip of the iceberg. That's what all of this is. It's the tip of the iceberg. But cancel culture existed long before, you know, Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and Snapchat, whatever, whatever social media is big today. Uh, <laughs> so... 
So today we're seeing a rise in similar warnings before the airing of programs on TV. Like, uh, they're nothing new. You know, even excluding the conversation about, like, Twisted Sister and other musicians who face the same scrutiny. Um, Most programs and films are edited to air on TV, right? And we get the notice that the film has been edited. They don't allow certain cuss words. They don't allow certain graphic, you know, situations. Uh, You know, Pulp Fiction airing on TNT is not the same as Pulp Fiction on Blu-ray, you know, uh, is the point. So, on top of that, you know, even if you look at, like, the MPAA rating system, which is absurd and ridiculous, there is an episode of Adam Ruins Everything all about it, and it's super fascinating because it is wild. It is a wild ride, honestly. Um, So, putting a film on TV... With severely outdated tropes, stereotypes, and language, or humor, or jokes, that has been made aware of its true harmful offense, is, it's really not a stretch. Where we were and where we are today, it's not a stretch to be like, hey, this movie that you're about to watch that was made in... 1942 and features, you know, the N-word and uh, stereotypes of black people. Sorry. <laughs> like, just be be forewarned. You know, it's not a stretch. So, it's, it's, what I like to say is it's like there's nobody who's standing behind these Uh, companies, these media companies, holding them at gunpoint and saying, you you have to put warnings before this. You know what I mean? Um, We're not, nobody's forcing their hands. They're making these decisions on their own because, again, we're constantly evolving society, right? Um, And it's the acknowledgement, too, that offense is older than we realize, and it has such a long history. Um, The first toilet that was featured on screen was in the 1960 film Psycho, I believe. Uh, I Love Lucy was barred from using the term pregnancy or pregnant uh, in 1952 in the script and Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz actually really had to fight just for the storyline where she was pregnant to be aired on television, where she actually was in the hospital delivering a baby. Granted, we didn't get, you know, in that delivery room. We got the waiting room. We got the waiting room and all of that. So, okay, progress, right? Uh, in 1968, in an episode of Star Trek called Plato's Stepchildren, William Shatner and Nichelle Nichols, they famously kissed and William Shatner actually, he actually ruined every other take after they had kissed so that way the only usable footage was going to be the kiss. And that came straight from Nichelle Nichols' book. So, 
when we look at, at censorship from the same lens, what do we see? <laughs> what I've pointed out there, it's just a few examples. You know, it's, again, tip of the iceberg. And there are plenty of other examples far worse. I mean, far, far worse. Uh in regard to the act of censorship. So censorship had, I mean, looking back, it had been used to, it had been weaponized, you know? Um, and the sole reason for the weaponization of, of being censored, it was for... <laughs> The reason, the sole reason of benefiting one major group of people, the overrepresented, 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 right? Um, so today, the concept of censorship from the scope of removing genuinely harmful, obscene, dangerous content. Uh, that puts people at risk by stereotyping and being a catalyst for how plenty of people view the world with so much access, it's no longer the benefit of just one group, right? Um, it's for the benefit of those who've previously been vilified. Time after time after time after time after time, <laughs> you know, uh, with ignorance and despicable language used to dehumanize and belittle. Right? So that also starts to open the door a little. And this can be a whole other episode. Holy crap, this is kind of a big conversation. So, again, stick with me, please. So, trauma, unfortunately, is a big part of everybody's lives. Uh, it is something that most people have experienced in one way or another. And that should never be invalidated. You know, that is that is something that's very important. And the more we talk about and normalize speaking about trauma, the healthier we're going to become, right? You know, the, the healthier we're going to become as a society by opening up and talking about these experiences that we've had that other people have had too, that other people may not have had, that we weren't aware that these other people were experiencing that, right? That's a really good thing. Um, but so much media spotlights only the trauma and focuses solely on that trauma of one underrepresented group, uh, as opposed to the excellence of that group, we could say. Uh, that's not... That's not to say that these things shouldn't be written about or discussed or viewed, absorbed. Again, that's very important for us to see from each other, for each other, and with each other. It's very, very important. But uh, 
that's not the only experience. And that's not the only part of somebody's life. Right? Uh, What about the gay characters who, hate to be so blunt about this, uh, weren't murdered or uh, (laughs) died by suicide? You know? What about that? What about the characters who... Uh, didn't have that experience. Or a trans character whose sole purpose of existing (laughs) is the butt of a joke or, uh, you know, being scrutinized uh, by the cis guy who felt like he was entrapped and had an entire montage devoted to the purging of his mouth, and body after kissing a trans woman. That's not entertaining. That's that's not traumatic to the guy, right? It's traumatic to trans people. And what kind of message are you sending people by saying you are wrong for your existence? Right? This is what will happen. That's that's not good. That's really not good. I don't want my kids seeing that. I want my kids to see that they are welcome in this world. You know? For whoever they are. <sighs> Again, though, this is just the tip of the iceberg. And this this does not and is not meant to negate the these horrible, tragic, debilitating things that occur in real life. But again, that's not the only experience. You know, when we start normalizing the basic concepts of acknowledging the world is made up of a plethora of people whose experiences are not the same, we can move away from what we typically see, right? And evolve to see genuinely wonderful media that celebrates and again normalizes these facets and may cha- may stand a fact may stand a chance sorry uh at eliminating so much bias so being a creative person it tends to mean you really have a goal to put something wonderful in the world Wonderful in that you want people to understand it, to identify with it, to seek hope, or to feel less alone in what you're creating, uh, whether it's based on your traumas or your wonders, uh, on overcoming those instances. Um, But it's a much grander scale in seeing representation that is not reliant on stereotypes, false quote-unquote science, (laughs) or plain ignorance, both willful and sometimes just accidental. It happens. It does. And we should be aware and be okay to want to improve our ignorances, right? Like, we can. (laughs) Um, It just means that you are a part, by acknowledging this, you are a part of dislodging these notions of harm and hatred and actually listening and amplifying rather than speaking over and ignoring. Uh, Think of 
think of where your ideas are stemming from, you know, uh, what it is that you've seen or you've witnessed. And then think again about it and again and again. Talk to people. <laughs> Hire a sensitivity reader. Uh, see if your words are doing more harm than good and vice versa. It's important. It's important that we realize where, where these people are coming from, where these ideas and concepts are coming from, and being able to separate the idea of censorship over correction, right? It's, it's the only way, it's the only way we can actually progress as a society because where we're at now, it blows. It does. It really blows. I hate that there are people I love that I can't be my true self where I live. People I love can't. I hate that. You know, it's scary. It's freaking scary. And it's unnecessary. It's so unnecessary. So when you see these warnings, these content warnings, these trigger warnings, remember that they work multiple ways. It's not just whining Gen Zers and millennials saying, this offends my sensitive, overly only eyes. It's not. It's really not. <laughs> but also remember that there are Facebook groups devoted to boycotting <laughs> children's programs for having the nerve and the audacity to show same-sex parents. Right? It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous is what it is. So the whole point is not to be divisive and not to sit here and, like I said, there were my opinions shared. <laughs> Truthfully, my opinions are a lot more visceral, but... <laughs> Again, trying to stick to the facts. Um, the facts are there. They are. And it's sad. And it's hopefully only going to get better. But we as creatives, like I said, we, are, we have to be a unified front. Right? We have to work with each other and for each other. And we need to make sure that We're hearing from other people that we're acknowledging and letting them step up to the plate instead of us pushing them out of the way and, you know, keeping them off of the plate. I don't know much about baseball, so that's as good as it's going to get, right? Um, so, yeah, I, I hope... This was an interesting episode. I, I would say I had a lot of fun going over everything I did. It was it was very interesting and um, all that, but it's also a very sad reality, you know that that we're adults 
and we have such a hard time. You know, it's, you know, it's silly. It's just silly. On a lighter note, though, I do have to say something. I also have to preface this. I'm not sponsored by anybody or anything like that, but I have been, <laughs> as I've been working and everything, and, and again, I like to sit down and I put something on in the background. One show I started watching is Ghosts on CBS. It's it's a remake of a British show, but it's the American version. Typically, I really don't go for American versions of, of shows from other countries, but this one is so silly. It's so silly and so funny and goofy and lighthearted, and I really want everybody to watch it because I don't want the show to get canceled. <laughs> um, I want it to come back for many more seasons because it's just... It's fun, it's goofy, and it's it's very pleasant because it's one of those shows, again, let's go to peace-loving hippie Jenna, where it's like, it's not filled with hate. There are, there's a bit of angst <laughs> here and there, but it's funny and silly and lighthearted. It's a funny, delightful show, so everybody should watch that uh, show, Ghosts, on CBS. And again, I'm not sponsored by... Uh, them or anything like that. I just really like the show. So, I, again, hope everybody has enjoyed this episode. Uh, yeah. I, I, I hope it was an insightful episode. Um, I don't know. I'll just steal Adam Conover's gig and just do Jenna Ruins everything. <laughs> no, I won't do that. Um, all right. Next week... Hopefully, assuming everything goes right with my, my schedule, should be the review episode. But until then, you can find us at www.theworldofmyth.com on Facebook and Twitter at the World of Myth Bits Podcast and the World of Myth Magazine and on Instagram at the World of Myth Bits. Thank you all for sticking around and listening. I very much appreciate it. Uh... So until next time.